Chapter 1 The Riddle I didn't know what to say. I'd just finished speaking to a parents group in Calgary, Alberta in March of 2004. The talk, about the subtleties of difference between how girls and boys learn, how they play, and how they're motivated, had gone well. I began doing these talks for parents groups and for schools in 2001. By March 2004, I was pretty comfortable with the format. The presentation is the easy part. The questions afterwards are more difficult. Dr. Sachs, my son Billy is very bright, one father said. We've had him tested twice, and both times his overall IQ has been in the 130 range, but he just has no motivation to learn. What do you mean? I asked. I mean, that he doesn't do his homework and he won't study for tests. He doesn't seem to care whether he gets an A or a C or an F. How old is he? I asked. Sixth grade. Um, what does he like to do in his spare time? I asked. Actually, Billy loves to read. Science fiction, mostly. He just refuses to read the books that the school assigns. I don't know why he seems to hate school so much. It's a good school. Which school does he attend? I asked. Dad named a local private school that I knew to be very prestigious. Class sizes at that school are small. The teachers are well-trained and highly regarded. Tuition is more than $20,000 a year. Stall for time. Have you spoken with anyone at the school? I asked. He nodded. The school counselor thinks Billy might have ADD, but I just don't buy it. How could he have ADD? He read Isaac Asimov's entire Foundation trilogy, twice. He can quote whole passages from The Lord of the Rings, He's even memorized some of the poems in Elvish. That just doesn't sound to me like a boy who has ADD. Billy loves to read, he just doesn't like school. I paused. I wanted to say that I couldn't give any specific advice without meeting Billy myself and doing my own evaluation, an evaluation that would take a minimum of two hours. That was the truth. But I knew it would sound like a cop-out since I was flying out early the next morning to return to my home in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. There would be no time to meet with Billy on this trip. While I hesitated, a woman spoke up. My son's in a similar predicament, but he's younger, second grade. Outside of school, my Jason is as sweet as an angel, but he's been sent to the principal's office several times now for hitting other kids. He says he was just playing. He's never actually hurt anybody, but the teachers say they have to refer any child who hits another child. Referral to a specialist is mandatory after three episodes, so now they're saying I have to have Jason evaluated. I wanted to point out that Jason's predicament wasn't in any way similar to Billy's. Billy hasn't been hitting anybody, but he seems to lack the motivation to succeed at school. Jason's problems seems to be not motivational but behavioral but I knew better than to say that. I just didn't know what to say, so I turned the tables. I asked the parents a question of my own. How many of you are in a similar situation? You have a son who's having school problems of some kind, but it's not clear why. About half the parents raised their hands. I'd like to hear from you then. What do you think is going on? Do you have any thoughts as to why your son is having a problem? School has become too academic, one father said immediately. Kindergarten isn't kindergarten anymore. My son and my daughter last year 
came home with homework their first week of kindergarten. Can you imagine assigning homework to kids in kindergarten? Five-year-old kids with an hour of homework to do. It's absurd. No wonder kids hate school. Several parents nodded. But why would that affect boys more than girls, I wanted to ask. Another father said, The schools have become feminized. The only male adult at my son's elementary school is the janitor. The teachers all want the students to sit still and be quiet. For some boys, that's not easy. It's not the teachers who are to blame, a woman said softly but firmly. It's the kids. I'm sorry, I don't mean to give offense, but kids today are lazy. The boys especially. They'd rather just sit at home and play video games. They wouldn't go to school at all if it were up to them. I know a boy across the street who doesn't do anything except play with his PlayStation. He doesn't do homework, he doesn't help around the house, he doesn't play sports. It's just video games, video games, video games. More nods. When I was their age, we had to walk to school three miles each way, no matter the weather, an older man said. We didn't have any of these school buses you see nowadays. We had to walk, even in snow. And I'll tell you one thing, when you've walked three miles in the snow to get to school, you make darn sure you learn something. You don't want that long walk to be for nothing. I think it motivates you. Nowadays, the kids get chauffeured everywhere. No wonder they don't have any motivation. They don't have to work for anything. No one made any reply. After a moment, a young woman said, I read somewhere that plastic might have something to do with it. How do you mean? I asked. Something about plastic. It's like hormones in beef. It messes up children's brains. That's... Why so many boys are having problems? That sounds a little far-fetched, I wanted to say, but I've learned that it's best to humor the people with the wackiest ideas. While still expressing courteous skepticism, so that the sane people won't think you've completely lost your marbles. But why would plastic affect boys differently from girls? I asked politely. Aren't girls and boys equally exposed? I don't know, it just does, she said. The pace of my speaking engagements, both for parents and for teachers, picked up substantially after the publication in 2005 of my book, Why Gender Matters, What Parents and Teachers Need to Know About the Emerging Science of Sex Differences. I've now spoken at more than 230 venues around the United States, Canada, Australia, and Mexico. The scene described above has been repeated dozens of times. I've engaged in ongoing correspondence with parents and teachers who are struggling to encourage boys to work up to their potential. And of course, I've seen many such boys in my own medical practice in Maryland. I've heard any number of explanations for why so many boys are having trouble connecting with school. Some parents blame the school. In some cases, mom believes it's because the boy's father walked out when her son was little, so he's never had a strong male role model. Others blame video games, or society, or plastics, or Hollywood. One parent even blamed Hillary Clinton, and several have blamed George W. Bush. What's the connection between President Bush and your son's problems in school? I asked that parent. Our country is spending so much money on that stupid war, when we ought to be spending money on the schools, she replied. But how would spending more money on public schools help your son, I wondered. Your son attends a private school. But I didn't ask that question. I wasn't interested in having an argument. 
I was interested in finding some answers. I'm a family physician. I've lived and worked in the same suburb of Washington, D.C. for the past 17 years. We have more than 7,000 patients in our practice. I've seen hundreds of families where the girls are the smart, driven ones, while their brothers are laid back and unmotivated. The opposite pattern, with the boy being an intense, successful child, while his sister is relaxed and unconcerned about her future, is rare. It's not just my suburb either. As you and I review what's known about this problem, we will see that the problem of boys disengaging from school and from the American dream is widespread. It affects every variety of community, urban, suburban, and rural, white, black, Asian, Hispanic, affluent, middle-income, and low-income. The end result of this spreading malaise is becoming increasingly familiar. Emily, or Maria, or Shaniqua, goes to college. She earns her degree. She gets a job. She has a life. Justin, or Carlos, or Damien, may go to college for a year or two or six, and he may or may not get a degree, but he doesn't get very far. He may have a great time at college, in part because there are now three girls at college for every two boys. At some large universities, there are now two young women for every young man. But the young women at college are more likely to be studying while the young men are goofing off. That boy just doesn't seem to have the drive that his sister has. He ends up working part-time at the mall or Starbucks. Eventually, he's back at home living with his parents, or with his girlfriend's parents, or another relative. But here's what's really strange and new about this picture. That young man isn't bothered by his situation. His parents are. His girlfriend, if she hasn't left him yet, is at least having second thoughts about him. But he's oblivious to their concerns as he surfs the internet on the computer they've provided or plays video games on the flat screen TVs they've bought for him. But haven't boys always been that way? During the question and answer section of another one of my talks, focusing specifically on boys, one father objected. Dr. Sachs, I'm not hearing anything new here. Haven't boys always regarded school as a boring waste of time? Wasn't that pretty much Tom Sawyer's attitude? What's changed? He's got a point. There's a long tradition of iconic American boys who disdain school, from Tom Sawyer to Ferris Bueller. But while those boys weren't heavily invested in school, they were still highly motivated to succeed, on their own terms, pursuing their own schemes. Tom Sawyer is determined to outwit Injun Joe, to go exploring with Huck Finn, and to win the affection of Becky Thatcher. Ferris Bueller disdains school because he has other, more important and engaging missions to accomplish in the real world, which for him is any world outside of school. What's troubling about so many of the boys I see in my practice, or the boys I hear about from parents and teachers, is that they don't have much passion for any real-world activity. Some of the boys are seriously engaged in video games, but as we'll see later in Chapter 3, most of the video games these boys play seldom connect with the real world, unless you want to shoot people or fly combat aircraft. The boys I'm most concerned about don't disdain school because they have other real-world activities they care about more. They disdain school because they disdain everything. Nothing really excites them. Even more disturbing is the fact that so many of these boys seem to regard their laid-back, couldn't-care-less attitude 
as being somehow quintessentially male. You need to care about what grade you get. It's important, one mother told her son. Girls care about getting good grades. Geeks care about grades. Normal guys do not care about grades, her 14-year-old son informed her in a matter-of-fact tone, the same tone he might use to show her how to program the TiVo. That's just the way it is for that boy. For many boys, not caring about anything has become the mark of true guidem. This attitude is something new, as we'll see in more substantive detail beginning in the next chapter. The hostility I'm seeing towards school among so many boys, no longer confined to black and Latino boys in low-income neighborhoods, but now including white and Asian boys in much more affluent suburbs, is also new. If you're my age or older, you can remember 40 years ago when the Beach Boys had a major hit with their song, Be True to Your School. Be true to your school, just like you would to your girl. That song describes a boy who is proud to wear a sweater emblazoned with the school's initials. A boy who insists that allegiance to one's school should be on par with the enthusiasm a boy has for his girlfriend. There is no trace of irony in the song. If you're my age or older, you remember Sam Cooke singing, Don't know much about history, but maybe by being an A student baby, I could win your love for me, in his song, Wonderful World. It's hard to imagine any popular male vocalist singing such a line today, except as a joke. Can you imagine Akon or 50 Cent or Snoop Dogg or even Taylor Hicks singing without irony and in all seriousness about wanting to earn an A at school to impress a girl? I can't. These changes may be insignificant by themselves, but I believe they are symptomatic of something deeper. As we'll see in the next chapter, a growing proportion of boys are disengaging from school. More and more of them will tell you that school is a bore, a waste of time, a tedium they endure each day until the final bell. As far as the boy is concerned, his real life, the life he cares about, only begins each day when the final bell rings, allowing him to finally leave the school and do something he really cares about. And what he really cares about may be playing video games, hanging out with friends, or doing drugs and alcohol. It may be anything at all, except for school, or anything connected with it. But you need to care about your schoolwork, or you won't get into a good college, his mom says. I hate school, her son answers. It's like prison. I'm just doing my time till they let me out. Then I'm done. Why would I want to sign up for four more years? A smaller and smaller proportion of boys are going on to college. Right now, as it stands, the student body at the average university in the U.S. is 58% female and 42% male with similar numbers in Canada and Australia. And going to school doesn't guarantee any positive result, particularly for boys. In fact, college is where the gender gap in motivation really shows up. Most girls who enroll in a four-year college program will eventually earn a degree. Most boys won't. Over the past 50 years, college campuses have undergone a sex change. They've changed from majority male to majority female. Here are the numbers for the male proportion of students enrolled in four-year colleges and universities in the U.S. from 1949 to 2006. 1949, 70% of undergrads were male. 1959, 64%. 1969, 59%. 1970, 
1979, 49%, 1989, 46%, 1999, 44%, and 2006, 42% were male. Colleges and universities are now scrambling to recruit qualified males. One mom told me that when it was time for her son to apply to college, she had some worries that turned out to be misplaced. Her recollection of her own college experiences 30 years ago led her to be concerned that admission offices would discriminate against her son, because after all, he is a white male. Instead, she said in her email to me, I found that males today are on the receiving end of a kind of affirmative action for any boys who test well. This gets them into college, but doesn't teach them how to cope with the bigger choices they will eventually have to face. Male students attending four-year colleges and universities today are now significantly less likely than their female peers to earn high honors or to graduate. Just 30 years ago, the opposite was true. In that era, young men were more likely than young women to graduate. Today, Justin is significantly less likely than his sister Emily to go to college, less likely to do well at college, and less likely to graduate from college. This is not an issue of race or class. We are talking about brothers and sisters from the same family. They have the same parents and the same resources. Certainly, not all boys have been infected by this weird new virus of apathy. Some are still as driven and intense as their sisters. Because we still see some of these successful young men around us, it's easy to miss the reality that more young men than ever before are falling by the wayside, on the road to the American dream. The end result, then, are frantic parents wondering why their son can't or won't get a life. He's adrift, floating wherever the currents in the sea of his life may carry him, which may be no place at all. Why does one young man succeed, while another young man from the same neighborhood, or even the same household, drifts along unconcerned? Where is he headed? Is there anything you can do about it? Those will be the central questions that you and I will explore together. For the past seven years, I spent every available moment studying those questions. In 2001, I wrote an academic paper on this topic for a journal published by the American Psychological Association. In 2005, as I mentioned, I published my first book, Why Gender Matters. That book was in part a progress report on my research on this question, although I also addressed some of the ways in which American society has become toxic to girls. In addition to being a board-certified family physician, I have the advantage of being a PhD psychologist with a background in scholarly research. So I've been able to investigate what I'm seeing quantitatively and systematically. I've talked with parents and with their sons in large cities like New York, Chicago, Toronto, and LA, as well as in smaller cities like Daytona Beach and San Antonio, in Cleveland, Calgary, and Memphis. I've visited schools in affluent suburbs like Chappaqua, New York, and Shaker Heights, Ohio, in Potomac, Maryland, and in the nicest areas of San Francisco and Tampa, as well as the bad areas of North Philadelphia and Dallas and Columbus, Ohio, and also in diverse rural communities. After seven years, I think I'm finally getting a handle on what's going on. I've identified five factors that are driving this phenomenon. I'm also finally in a position to share some tested strategies to, to decrease the likelihood that your son will succumb to this epidemic of apathy, as well as practical tips for helping your son find his way back if he's already disengaged. 
please don't misunderstand me. When I talk about the problems I'm seeing in the boys whom I encounter in my practice, I'm not saying that girls don't have any problems. Girls have problems too. I know just as many parents who are concerned about their daughters as I know parents who are concerned about their sons. But the problems are different. These are serious problems, every bit as difficult and as consequential as the boys' issues I will address throughout the book. But the problems the girls face are different from the boys. The girls' problems are no less important, just different. This book is about the boys, and the five factors driving their growing apathy and lack of motivation.